Hello, and welcome to the program, Woke Up, where we amplify the voices of those who uh, have had many experiences uh, in on the left, uh, different mindsets uh, that tended toward Marxism and Marxist thought, but then they realized it was leading to a place they didn't want to go. And uh, today we have an incredible guest, a woman who has given her life, uh, a professional to, to women's health, women's health issues. She's an herbalist. She's a midwife. She's a nurse practitioner. She's the owner of a very uh, successful medical clinic in Albuquerque, uh, Enchanted Family Medicine. And uh, it's a real honor. Uh, we have on the show today, Mary Lou Singleton from Albuquerque. Mary Lou, how are you today? I'm great, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk. So why don't you just start telling us a little bit about yourself, your passions, and a little bit of your pathway and the things that you've been so incredibly involved with. Sure. You know, when we were talking before the show, you were like asking about my history. So I, I just thought I would, um, I have an interesting trajectory. I would say I came out of the womb mad about sexism. Like I, you know, that was, that's <laughs> kind of my driving forces um, is uh, recognizing women's full humanity while recognizing the full human experience of being female and being pretty angry about the way the world's set up to denigrate women in so many ways. And, you know, it's interesting, like I, you know, I think one of the first cancel cultures is um, women feeling like we internally have to say, oh, I know, I know men have it hard too. But, but for me personally, I'm not a man. I came out female and I came out into a very sexist right-wing family, um, a very, very traditionalist Catholic family and, um, and was really aware of the difference in the way boys and girls were treated from the time I can remember. Um, my parents were right-wing activists. They were the co-chairs of Pennsylvanians for Human Life. My mother started one of the first crisis pregnancy centers in Pennsylvania called Lifeline. I, I was there a lot as a child, um, just doing, you know, while my parents were volunteering there. Um, I, I grew up in that right-wing activist world. I went to Catholic school. Um, one of my first experiences with thought policing was my first communion where I... Um, I remember just being this, you know, this little seven-year-old in my itchy dress and thinking, I don't believe it. I don't actually believe the priest is turning the bread into Jesus and I can't make myself believe it. I, I just can't, I can't get there. I can't get this grace or this faith everyone's talking about. And I turned to my best friend, Stacy, and I said, you know, I, I don't believe it. I don't really believe it. And she said, Shh, you, you can't say that. You can't even think that. Don't say it to anyone else. You'll be in so much trouble if you say it again. So I have a, um, a long history with, with being told what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, understanding the social ramifications of saying the unsayable, thinking the unthinkable. Um, I, you know, I continued, you know, believing mostly what my parents believed politically up until like high school when I started, um, seeing like, you know, again, just the extreme sexism, like just being told to my face that girls aren't as smart as boys. They're not as good at math. When I, you know, I had a near perfect math score in my SAT. I was always the smartest kid in the class. I, I um, was better at math than, you know, 99% of the boys in the town and, and just having to be gaslit like that of, you know, girls aren't good at that. Girls aren't good at that. Um, and and also seeing the way the, the gay kids around me were being treated, the, watching my, you know, my gay friends in high school be beaten up, be, be terrorized, um, 
So I went to college uh, having been kind of turned pretty liberal and, and I went to a small liberal arts college where I would say I was indoctrinated into uh, mainstream left-wing thinking of, um, you know, um, very much about the oppressor-oppressed dynamic, that every institution is rotten to the core and needs to be destroyed, that, um, um, you know, I mean, you know, the whole thing that just, you know, I, I also all the liberal structural stuff of at the same time, we're trying to burn it down. We want the government to give us health care. We want the government to pay for, for housing to give, you know, even back then people were talking about universal basic income. So I kind of became a, a left-wing lockstep thinker, subscribed to the nation, got a lot of my ideas from, from the left at that time. And then in the early 2010s, I guess, um, started kind of waking up from that. Of um, I had been really indoctrinated into a lot of the sex-positive feminism, thought that porn was okay as long as it was feminist porn, started to see the fallout of porn culture and how terrible relationships between the sexes were becoming because of pornography, the mainstreaming of, of internet porn and just the normalization of porn. And then watching the gender insanity come in, I started really noticing that like in 2009, 2010, and immediately sensing this extreme danger. And when I tried to speak out about it on the left, oh, it was just like being back, being seven years old and Stacey Bender tell, telling me, you can't say that, you can't think that. If you say it again, you're excommunicated. So that's a brief recap of my, uh, my trajectory there. Yeah, so in the mid 2010s, maybe like 2015, 16, uh, you were a, a very active midwife. You were you had overseen a mu bunch of home births, and you were a part of the Midwest Alliance of North America, or uh, the the Midwives Alliance of uh, North America. And uh, you and a friend of yours, uh, Michelle, had uh, drafted a letter uh, that represented like thousands of midwives uh, throughout North America. And maybe and that really sprung you onto the national scene. Maybe you can tell a little bit about what was going on there and. and what that letter was about. Sure. You know, we have, we've all have so many threads to our story and I think, okay, what I just told you about myself is certainly not everything about myself that I also, from the time I was a little tiny girl, I wanted to help women have babies. I kind of want to be like an old school country doctor, which actually my, my great grandfather had been that. And his wife was a midwife. So my, my great grandmother was a midwife. I wanted to like, you know, be on horseback with a doctor bag and go help people have babies and help, help people um, heal. And so I was tracked for med school. And then in college, I learned about midwifery for the first time in a contemporary context. And I immediately switched gears th from thinking I was going to become an OBGYN to realizing I, I want to be, this is what I want to be. I want to be a midwife. This puts together so much of who I am. My, my, um, my love of women, my love of, um, of medicine, my desire to help people liberate themselves from institutions that are trying to make them think they're um, not capable of making their own decisions. Um, it, it just, I just fell in love with midwifery. So I became a, a midwife, became a home birth midwife here in New Mexico. And I had a very busy practice. I served on the board of directors of the Midwives Alliance of North America from 2000, no, from 19... 98 to 2001. I served on the board of directors of the National Association of Certified Professional Midwives later in the early 2000s. Um, I worked very hard in my own state to promote midwifery and to help promote women's birth choices. So I was very invest that invested in it. That was my world. I loved the midwifery world. I loved the other midwives. I loved the political midwives. I loved the women who wanted to liberate birth. 
And um, in, around 2009, we started noticing these new young activists kind of showing up in the birth world with a lot of new language where they wanted us to start saying, um, women aren't the only people who give birth and men can give birth. And more than that, they were saying, we need to stop focusing on um, mainstream normal women. We've got to focus on the most marginalized women. Like the, the, um, we ha if we have to only focus about like the, the homeless woman who um, only speaks, who doesn't speak English, who has AIDS, like that's who we should be focusing on, which was an enormous shift from midwifery is for normal birth and seeing midwifery as, I view it almost as, um, as like um, ecological preservation of trying to keep as many humans healthy and normal as possible. Like, we're, like land preservation of land that hasn't been contaminated. Um, for me, that's how I always viewed midwifery is like, let's keep as many humans healthy as possible. Let's, let's get as many humans healthy as possible. And we were being told that was privileged. We we're only focusing on privileged women. We have to focus on the sickest women, the women with the worst circumstances, which isn't midwifery, you know? Um, and with that came the language changes. The old guard held that off for a while. And then in 2014, these young activists who often came in with a bunch of funding, they'd been trained um, in training programs that often had a lot of billionaire money behind them. They kind of took over in 2014. And in 2014, the Midwives Alliance of North America changed their um, professional guidelines to say in the core competencies for men, um, they, they no longer acknowledge women give birth. They erased the words woman and mother from the entire document of the core competencies for midwives. Um, my friend Michelle Pacino, who had also strategizing, researching, trying to figure out what, how, what to do, what should we do about what was happening to midwifery. And we drafted an open letter to the Midwives Alliance of North America explaining um, exactly why we thought this was dangerous, how it didn't fit with the midwifery model of care. Um, midwifery is women's space, it's sacred women's tradition. And we published that open letter in 2015. We got many, many signers. I think we have well over a thousand signers, um, including some heavy hitters like Ina Mae Gaskin, who's wrote, she wrote Spiritual Midwifery. She was one of the, the founding mothers of the modern home birth movement. Um, Susan Hodges from Citizens for Midwifery. Like there were a lot of big, big names that signed and Mana just ignored us. Um, and then when they couldn't ignore us anymore, they actively tried to shut us down and, and purge us from the organization. Um, we, um, in 2015, the Mana, well, after, right after we'd written our, our letter, Mana refused to, to um, sit with us, even though we had both sat on the board of this organization and we had many former board members on our list of signers. Um, instead, they worked with a queer justice organization to draft a response that was called birth for everybody. They separated those into two words, not birth for everybody, one word, birth yes. for everybody. Just that um, mechanistic, reductionist, almost necrophilic root of this, this transhumanist agenda, right? That like we're just being chopped into parts that were just bodies. And that was that what they labeled their letter. And then they just went through line by line with queer speak, supposedly rebutting us, but just saying crazy things like, um, you know, we said that we're concerned midwifery has always been about the natural design of the human body and that we're, you know, we're perfectly designed to do this, that, you know, we're, we, have the power to birth on our own. 
And so we were using the term natural and they said, there's nothing more natural than expressing yourself. There's nothing more natural than doing what you want to do. So they didn't have an actual rebuttal. It was all just a bunch of that postmodern queer speak of their rebuttal. And we, Michelle and I tried to get a, a table at the Mana conference to express our view. We weren't allowed to have a table. We were followed around at the conference by security. Um, anytime we put materials out, they were immediately confiscated. So we held a shadow conference in that same hotel. We held a, um, an underground alternative conference where we talked about radical feminism. We, we talked about um, the risks of gender identity to, to humanity, to, especially to women and our sex-based rights. We talked about the commodification of the human body and how we're all being encouraged to just sell our, our body parts. We talked about milk selling, egg, egg poaching, um, you know, plasma, surrogacy. We talked about um, the dangers of hormonal contraception. You know, we just we really talked about these, you know, the risk of big tech transhumanism to women's sovereignty. And we had lots, many, many, many women came by to our little, you know, alternative conference we put on. So yeah, that's how I kind of burst onto the scene as uh, what it was I called. Michelle Evans called me a high-profile turf, so I'm happy to. I love the fact that you yeah. ladies were more uh, subversive than the subver uh, subversionists, you know, that <laughs> you, you even went more subversive than them. And, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned some of the, the way that they just uh, take this incredible spiritual experience for a female to be a life giver, that sacred space. And one thing about me uh, – uh, I just wanted to share is that uh, uh, my, my daughter uh, is a midwife and she's in medical school now in order to become a, 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 a doctor in midwifery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she invited me to be at the birth up in Canada and Canada is pretty liberal. Uh, midwives are much more common than in America. And I was actually in the room and I watched her give birth to my, my granddaughter and like it was a family experience. It was the most spiritual thing I ever experienced watching my own child bring forth life and how incredible that experience was. It, it, it did something deep within me, you know? And so when you have this marginalizing of something so incredible and so empowering and so sacred for the entire family, you know, and then they just talk about everybody and they, 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 they like, diminish it so way in, in so many ways i'd like you to talk a little bit about things that are happening like the surrogacy and and uh you know egg harvesting and, and different things that are going on that actually take away the 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 incredible spiritual wonder of motherhood and, and childbirth and and how this is being mistreated Right. Ooh, I, I've been feeling very heavy about surrogacy recently. Um, I mean, I have for a long time, but it's ratcheting up so much. I think we, anyone who's paying attention can see that there, there is a mass marketing push for surrogacy among the celebrity class, which we all know the, you know, the, the ruling class, the people actually like run the world, um, use these trendsetters of celebrities to sell what the new trends are going to be. And so in the last few weeks, we've seen, um, uh, Chrissy Teigen and um, and Naomi Campbell. Naomi Campbell, they just said, you know, becomes a mother at 53. You're never too old to be a mother. 
And um, then later down in the article is that you should, she hired a surrogate and bought a baby. Like she did not give birth at 53. Um, Chrissy Teigen kissing the belly of the, the woman she's hiring to gestate the baby she's going to buy. It, it, surrogacy is so horrific to me. Oh, and then the, like many, many gay men, including Dave Rubin on the right, like this is not a right left issue. Um, watching Jordan Peterson congratulate Dave Rubin on, on, right now and ratcheting up we're just getting uh, an onslaught of propaganda normalizing surrogacy um so to me it it's um you know it's, it's in roots um this degradation of motherhood and i'm i'm always shocked that people don't understand the primacy of birth like birth is what pregnancy and birth is what makes us all human. Like that is not debatable. Like that is our common human experience. That is how we become human is we are conceived within the body of a woman, though now like sometimes we're conceived in a lab, but in, for all of human history up until the last tiny blip, we are conceived in the body of a human. We are made by a woman with her blood, sweat, and tears. Like she makes us with nine months of, of work to make that baby. And she moves through her own challenges, like birth pushes you so far past what you think you can do. She, she has to open up and be a channel and let, let us come into this world through her own, you know, mind-blowing physical and psycho-spiritual process of, of birth. And then, you know, we, we still remain one with our mother and the cord is still attached and the placenta is still working. We're, we're two but one at that point. And then our mother feeds us from our bodies. That is the human design. That is what makes everybody human. And the fact that it's still considered so controversial and radical to say birth is the primary issue. Birth is the template for what society believes is true. Birth is the primary rite of passage and how we give birth tells us everything about what a culture believes. So right now we believe motherhood isn't important and that um, there's no such thing as a primal attachment that starts in the womb. And I mean, Michael, it's it's breaking my heart. I mean, it feels this gender issue of of pretending there's there's not a unique state of being of of femaleness. And this is feeling humanity. Where do you see it taking humanity? What, uh, what, you know, because uh, a novice, most people would say, oh, isn't that nice that uh, a, a woman can't have a baby, but somebody else is carrying the baby and they're getting some economic benefit from it, maybe a college student. But then uh, uh, the, the, the mom is actually going to realize her dream to be a mom. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about, uh, I'd like to go a little deeper about the ethics involved uh, that, are, that are shocking and things that we should be concerned about as a society. I think where it's going to take us inevitably is artificial wombs. I, I think that where it's going to take us is this transhumanist hellscape, like the matrix, um, which we've, we've warned ourselves. Like we go back and look at, at, um, at science fiction for close to a hundred years. We even Mary Shelley, like we've been warning ourselves about this. We've been warning ourselves not to do this. I believe again, that, um, Pregnancy and birth is what makes us human. And when you separate the woman from that experience and act as though she's just secondary to that, we have completely dehumanized half of humanity. And I'd step back even further and say we've dehumanized all of humanity because we all come from that. We all come from that process. And this is where, um, you know, I'd ask men in particular to think a little more deeply that, you know, if, if men don't see a problem with surrogacy, 
the the thing of surrogacy is the end point of equality feminism, right? It's the end point of liberal feminism that we can be like men, that I can who's made the baby. And the the primal connection to our mothers, which is different than our connection to our fathers. And that's okay. It doesn't mean fathers aren't important. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything except that it's important that our first love is our mother. Our first relationship is our mother. It is what makes us human. And that women are the crew. Because there's, you know, we, we don't have a loving culture. Um, many people really don't like women. Um, men, you know, the paternity uh, anxiety that is centuries, millennia old in men uh, that has created women as chattel that I have to own this woman so I know who my children are. All of that has led up to surrogacy where we just completely dehumanize women with this process and view women as nothing but a mechanical machine to incubate somebody else's property and then then the person can come get their property. So it, it's just part of the old story, in my opinion. It's just it's just another step in the same story that's been going on since since women were were property. Um, and also children as property, like children are now a commodity. The 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 trendsetters, the Kardashians, the models, the you know, the the fashion people, um, all of these rich people are buying babies and everyone's celebrating. It's um, it's turning children into a commodity as well. Well, this is really fascinating for me. Uh, uh, looking at these uh, sociological dynamics from a, a female perspective, uh, you just see a tearing down and like as some have re referred to as a an erasure erasure of women. And you know, me speaking as a man who's a father and a grandfather, uh, when people start talking about oh, that's Let's smash down the patriarchy, the evil patriarchy. All the problems of the world are because of the patriarchy. And I think like, well, how does that win over a Jewish Christian man who, when there's a worldview that says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, that a legacy and like, what's wrong with a man loving his wife for 50, 60 years and producing stable kids and grandkids and stability, and then maybe leaving a little bit of an inheritance. I mean, why would you want to smash that? You know, that just seems like an attack on masculinity, but like looking at it from a female perspective, this woke leftist post-millennial destructive force, uh, it, it's like it's trying to destroy everything, everything, the culture, m masculinity, femininity, uh, human sexuality, uh, every aspect of what's built our society. And I, I've, I've known you've been outspoken about, uh, your concerns of this trans cult invading women's spaces. Uh, perhaps you could, uh, even beyond the birthing room and, and, uh, and, and pregnancy, yeah. you know, maybe you can talk about some of your concerns about, you know, what's going on with women's only spaces and, and the onslaught of relentless attack against, against women. Right. Right. Um, what even is a woman? <laughs> I, I feel the same way. And I, I, you know, we're a sexually dimorphic species, but men and women are different. Males and females are different. Um, and so um, the trans thing, again, it's another really heavy topic that sometimes feels like the end of humanity to me. Um, why is this important? And on so many levels, it's important. But um, 
from a female perspective, there's certain things that I think, you know, I talk to my husband or my son or my male friends. And I just realize sometimes, oh, they really, they really don't, how could they, but they really don't understand what it's like to live in a world where you have to negotiate with male violence always as a female. I'm a small female. I'm five feet tall. Um, I live in a world where I have to negotiate with the fact that um, there are potentially violent men around. There are other species that have birds are very egalitarian. Some of the mammals are egalitarian. We look to be like one of the kind of species where our males have a tendency toward aggression and that can be very dangerous to the females and the children. And because of that, females have an innate design that we can clock a male easily. We have safety of myself and my children. I need to know if I have to be vigilant. I need to, you know, they tell us in medicine, if we're first responders, the first thing you do is not run over to the person. The first thing is assess the safety of the scene. As a female, I am divinely designed to be able to assess the safety of a scene for myself and my children, which means I need to be able to tell if there are males around, especially males that male and children only for our own safety when it comes to locker rooms and bathrooms. And um, even if we just want to relax, you know, <laughs> we just want to be away from the constant low to high grade, depending on the situation, very real threat of male violence against us and our children. So does that, how does that hit? Does that, does that, sound like something you can hear that sounds perfect i mean it makes perfect sense in prisons the most vulnerable time and if a human's incarcerated they're totally subjected to the system and then to introduce a biological male into that system is is just cruel and unusual punishment to me you know i mean that's just why we would even consider allowing that is pretty much disgraceful you know one of the things that you, that you talk a lot about is uh uh, it, is freedom. I'm sorry, go ahead. So the, the incarcerated women um, would definitely count as those most marginalized women, right? When you're talking to the left speak people and the fact that so few people care about them, but the, that we are putting ra rapists, male rapists into women's prisons is, is part of the psychological war against all women, but is a very physical and real um, torture of of those incarcerated women like they this is this is a horrific situation i'm glad you brought it up it's just i'm gonna weep about it i just i can't even believe we live in a society where people hate women that much that they would prioritize the the emotional needs or desires of a man part of women's humanity is almost too much to bear when you really think about it and, and the, the utter hypocrisy of the intersectionality people you know I mean, think of the intersectional uh, victimization, oppressed classes that are involved with incarceration for females, you know, and, and there's no, no compassion, mm -hmm. you know, whatever happens, happens. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I love about you and I resonate with you is this concept of freedom and liberation. And uh, you, you've been a lifelong liberation activist. And uh, I've heard you speak about forced medicalization. I've, I've heard you talk about, Big Pharma. I've heard you talk about, uh, you know, women's spaces, uh, compelled speech and things like this. And so I'd like you to open up your heart and just talk about, you know, what's your revelation? What's your passion in terms of freedom and liberty? And what are the, the encroaching things that uh, keep you up at night or bring you concerns about what you see going on all around us? We're living in very interesting times. Um, so for me, you know, I, I am a, a human sovereignty activist, and, and I would define sovereignty as the, the um, 
ability to make our own decisions free of, of corporate and state interests, free of, of ruling class interference. Um, and, I, and I want that for everybody as in a way that, it, for me, um, sovereignty means acting in a way we have sovereignty over ourselves as long as we're not hurting anybody else. Um, so coercion free of ruling class pressure. And I really believe um, humans, human free will is, is such an amazing gift. And I think there are forces that want to break our wills and harness our, our creative power for their own agenda. And I think we could all agree with that throughout history. There are ruling class forces that um, want to set the agenda for everybody else. So right now, my feet had cut out earlier and I was talking about big pharma. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think there is, you know, spiritual warfare because every time you talk about things that are concerning and things that are going on relevant to culture, it's like the the devils act up and they shut you, they shut you up. Mm-hmm. You don't have freedom to speak here. So right now we we stop that in Jesus name. I know. So I want you, it's I want really you. it's really interesting in our conversation in particular. And my biggest concern right now on most days is is the pharmaceutical industry or what we call big pharma, which I think is a predatory industry that wants to turn every human on the planet into an illness identified daily pharmaceutical customer. And we're living in a time where um, in the United States, at least most most people are drugged every day. I think 70 percent of U.S. adults are taking at least one pharmaceutical medication every day. Many, many children are taking daily pharmaceuticals. Um, the trans agenda is obviously turning people into lifelong pharmaceutical dependence. Nearly 100% of births in our culture, well, close to it, well over 90% of births in our culture are, um, are you know, big tech, big pharma events. So we are initiated into big tech and big pharma as our our uh, birthing force, right? That we, we believe we can't give birth unless we're hooked up to machines and we've got drugs running and uh, we've got a tube in every orifice and, and we are delivered from the process by big tech and big pharma. So those, those forces, I truly believe, are um, wanting to turn us all into their, I don't know if it's serfs is the right word, it almost feels worse than that. Like they're definitely their dependents. So in my work, I really try to help people liberate themselves from that. And, and one place I like to work is, you know, how do you heal? How, how to help people who can get off daily meds? Um, how to help people understand that healing is possible without, without pharmaceuticals. And in fact, healing is not really possible with pharmaceuticals. The pharmaceutical model doesn't heal. It creates lifelong drug dependence, right? Um, people aren't healed of their asthma from their puffers, people aren't healed of their type two diabetes from the medication. Those are conditions that people can heal and recover from and not have anymore. But um, we're told the the treatment, the healing for that is to take daily drugs. So that's one of my loves and passions is to try to help people achieve health sovereignty in their lives because um, health is freedom. And, and personal empowerment where you're not dependent on on, on a drug or outside forces, but our bodies were made to heal. Our bodies are made to be healthy and, you know, diet, exercise, uh, you know, prayer. I mean, all sorts of things we can do to uh, put us in a better state of mind uh, is this big pharma is just a mask to cover up what's really going on and people don't get real healing. And so I, I'm with you on that. What, 
you were outspoken too against uh, a recent uh, sociological dynamic that we all lived through, and that was some forced medicalization. And you were mm-hmm. you were very outspoken about that and concerned. I was wondering if maybe you could gently wade into those waters. Sure. sure. Um, that was, I don't even want to call it COVID. I, I would call it the, um, the, the totalitarian response to COVID was probably the most difficult thing I've ever been through. And I've been through some really difficult things. You know, I've, I have not had, um, I haven't had the hardest life, but I haven't had the easiest life. And that really was, was hard. So forced and coerced medical care in my opinion, is is always wrong. I don't care what the circumstance; it is it is not okay. And to force healthcare providers to to participate in that is is equally unokay. I think people forgot. You know, it's like we. I was raised in a generation never forget, never forget about the Holocaust, and we we were told over and over again, mm. never forget, so it won't happen again. And I know we're not allowed to. C- compare anything to the Holocaust, but why were we told never to forget if, if we weren't going to be on alert for similar things coming down the road? And I, I really, really wish more people would read the Nuremberg laws and understand that the Nazi project and the Holocaust were carried out entirely under the guise of public health. That was a public health policy of the Nazis. And the very first um, segregation of the Jews, the segregation of the train platforms, which was really the beginning of the horrors that that, that started being institutionalized, um, was public Jews assembled. It's for everybody's good if, if we separate the train platforms because we don't want we don't want people to get typhus. This is for the good of the Jews and for the good of everyone else. So good Germans who weren't necessarily seething with anti-Semitism went along with it because it was about public health. And then the ghettos were first established on, you know, they were pushed on the masses as a public health project because again, the Jews had diseases, particularly typhus. Anyway, we know how that story went. It was horrible. And at the end of World War II, we had the Nuremberg trials, which um, were the very first international human rights um, tribunal trials. And they you know, tried to assess what happened so we could make sure it wouldn't happen again. And they wrote the very first international human rights law, which is the Nuremberg laws. And the Nuremberg laws are 100% about um, having to participate in that was was really rough. Um, I am 100% pro-choice on all medical decisions, including vaccination. It's very, very interesting that when I am pro-choice on abortion, I get called pro-abortion. When I'm pro-choice on vaccine, I get called anti-vaccine. I, I find that <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. There's a, 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 a man yeah. who, I, who, I, who I met uh, about six weeks ago at an event that he spoke at and had some private time with him and then had a dinner party with him. And uh, his name is Eric Metaxas. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. He uh, He's written several books. He comes approaches life from a mm-hmm. Christian worldview. He's from Yale. And uh, he, he wrote a book uh, uh, comparing 
what was going on. Because it wasn't like Hitler came on the scene and the very next day there was gas chambers built. It was a slow erosion of the German populace, the church in particular, that just uh, went along with it, didn't look, you know, didn't want to get involved, didn't want to say anything, the sociological pressures. And it didn't happen overnight, but uh, he was making a parallel of what he sees going on in America of what happened in Nazi Germany. And it took about a decade to see the atrocities that we had. And, and it was uh, his book is a wake up call for America. And he said very few, uh, it's a Christian, a Christian author. He said very few of the Christians or the pastors or leaders were actually speaking up. And if a few hundred more would have, uh, it, it probably would have uh, stopped what was happening, but they didn't. And there was a few like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others that are famous and he was saying it's a wake-up call for America when we see all this uh, compulsion of speech, compulsion of medicalization, a loss of freedom, the unity between uh, business and government, and uh, you know all the things that are you know high tech and the technocracy that exists and the lack of freedoms. He says this is he lines it up and he makes a great parallel of what was happening in in Germany, and he's saying look, wake up, America! It's time to speak up. Everybody needs. Uh, you know, focus on our liberty and our freedoms because uh, this could all go away and we can end up in a really, really dark, dark place as a, as a nation, as a society. And, uh, you know, you don't start out with gas chambers, but you sure as heck can end in it. And like you said, never forget, or that saying, oh, when they, they came for the Jews, nobody stood up or they came for the blacks or the homosexuals, nobody stood up and they came for me and there was nobody left to stand up. I mean, that's that, I mean, you've heard that before. And so, I think now is a time. It's a time for us to speak out about freedom. It's for freedom we've been set free. Our entire constitution is based on liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and uh, this cancel culture, this silence, and this timidity, and this, uh, you know, and some of us will go down. I mean, the, you know, some of us will lose our jobs or be thrown in prison. But, you know, if more people, if we can get critical mass, we begin to marginalize uh you know, because 90% of America doesn't want, you know, males competing in female sports. You know, they don't want the sexualization of our eight-year-olds and puberty blockers for kids that can't make even a decision. They aren't even old enough to buy a beer or, or vote or, you know, their brains aren't developed. Most people, but, but people are just afraid of the mob. They're afraid of being canceled. And I do see a shift. Do you see some kind of shift going on in terms of freedom and people taking a stand more? Or are we just uh, are we just a bunch of cowards that are, are just going to sit back in our generation and and just watch everything that was sacrificed for us, the generations before us that fought for freedom? Are we just going to like cede all that to, to, a, to a tyrannical government? We'll see. We'll see how the story plays out, right? Um, I think... You know, history history gives us examples of both, but mostly we get examples of people going along with it. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I think it was Zuby who said um, the majority of people believe, behave like the majority of people. So we're herd animals. We we do tend to just conform to to what's happening around us. I hope people will wake up. I I keep thinking the trans thing is just. It's so ridiculous and it's so over the top and it's so clearly, clearly harmful to children and women and our ability to, to name reality. I keep thinking that this, this would be the issue that would just break the bubble for people, but um, I'm, I'm amazed. Still on the left, 
I see people saying, well, you know, actually men and women aren't that different in strength and size. And I just think, are, are you crazy? Like, I, I distinctly remember the moment when my brother, who is like 11 months younger than me, became stronger than I was. Like, I, I had ruled over him. He was my, he, he was my minion. Like, I, he would do whatever I said until we hit puberty. And then suddenly, I mean, he could just knock me over with very little effort. Like, he, I, I, know, I lost my power over him because he, was, he became so strong. Like, men are unquestionably physically stronger than women. Do I think that means men are superior and should rule over women? No, I think that only a very, um, only a very bad man thinks he's better than women because he can hit harder. You know, I don't think that's, that's, a, that's a good example of, of why you'd be a superior person. But I think it's how our species is designed that men are bigger to protect us because women, estrogen stops our long bone growth in puberty so we can change our bone structure to have babies and we need men to have their role of protecting us when we're vulnerable. And we, again, are, have become so untethered from our nature and from our physiological design that I keep, I just keep thinking everybody's going to wake up, but people apparently are just really disconnected and not in their bodies and not um, physically interacting with each other. Maybe it's because people don't have siblings anymore. People don't wrestle as kids we've been bombarded with propaganda of these female superheroes of these teeny tiny, like, you know, five foot four hundred pound women who can bring down the Hulk. Like that's part of the propaganda that has gotten into people's minds to believe that girls, girls are just as strong as boys. Women are just as strong as men and people believe it. They're actually justifying like Leah Thomas. They're justifying the takeover of women's sports. They're denying the reality of um, women's physiological vulnerability to male violence. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. But history's full of hoodwinking. Listen to the emperor's new clothes. We don't listen to Little Red Riding Hood. We don't listen to these stories we have that are supposed to warn us about this. Yeah, and on the masculine side, there's this radical effemination, effeminization of males. You know, a young man who's gone through puberty, who wants to take on the world and and pursue his dreams and get married and you know, he's told there's global warming and your toxic masculinity and there's rape culture on college campuses. And I, I get there's anomalies and there's problems, but the majority of men aren't like that. And so they're afraid. They're afraid to date women. They're afraid to, you know, pe people aren't having sex like they used to have anymore. There's, you know, much more, less yeah. complicated just by using porn versus interacting with the human relationship. And in the same way, there's biology and the the, uh, the way we're made as men. We want to protect our family. We want to be the strong leader in our family in terms of, you know, I, I'm sure if you were in a fight with your husband, he could probably beat the crap out of you, the five-foot wife. But but he loves you, and he, he wants to protect you and go through life with you and respect you and watch you flourish. And, and that's the way most men are that are in a healthy marriage. They love their wives, and they love their children. And and they want to be there for them and they want to be their protector and their hero and, you know, and, and support and everything that makes a healthy relationship. And it's not just America. That's the way humanity in every culture of the world is, you know, I mean, that it doesn't matter if you're in Africa or Russia or Ukraine or you know, uh, Asia or, or South America. I mean, there's, observable differences in male and females and there's similarities 
within the cult, within the disparate cultures about the way men and women relate and intimacy and how the species goes on. And there's this massive attack both on femininity and the woman and on the man and on the family. And, and so this uh, wokeism, yeah. this critical social justice doesn't produce anything. It's cynical, it's destructive and anything it gets its hands on, whether it's a, an atheist group, whether it's a church, whether it's a, a business, whether it's a, a you know, your group uh, for, for uh, midwifery, it just seeks to tear it all apart and builds absolutely nothing. And so I, I just want people to wake up. And that's why, you know, I started this little podcast trying to amplify voices of people that were on the left that bought into the dialectic, but they realized, you know, this is, this has gone way, way over the top. You know, this is, uh, it's time to step, step back. And I want people to have courage during college, uh, to not get sucked into it or those that are sucked into it to, to leave it and begin to stand up against it. Uh, otherwise God only knows how destructive this is all going to become. You know, it, again, it's really a war on humanity. Um, and yes, you know, our, like our men are broken, our women are broken. And I, you know, I hate to be like that, like the, the single issue person, but I'm just going to keep bringing it back to birth that, Birth is the, the primary human experience, like it is in, in the sense of our first, our first experience in the world, right? And birth is designed to turn women into mothers. And by that, I don't mean like this out. Um, uh, so, so the breaking of birth has broken humanity where birth is designed to awaken mm. a woman's instincts not just her love her her love for that baby yes. but her fierceness of protection and what you experience with your daughter right that you it everyone present at an unmedicalized birth so what you experience being present at an undisturbed birth with your daughter, an unmedicalized birth, which is how humans are designed to birth. That is the template for birth for, for all but the last 75 years. Um, what you experienced was the design of bonding, of, of fierce love, of that physical incarnation of, of human love that is the birth experience. And the woman is flooded with the love hormone oxytocin that bonds her profusely with her body and also wakes up her instincts. She would lay down her life for that baby. She, she is fierce. She knows what to do because her ancient instincts have awoken. You didn't, you know, I didn't have to read any books on how to mother any more than my dog would need to because I had an undisturbed, supposed to work, our fierce mothers. And we have lost that. And now we have a society of coddling mothers who are terrified of everything, who have not woken up to their own power through this process that is divinely designed to make us understand how incredibly powerful we are, how we can do so much more than we thought we could, how we don't need to be afraid of, of life because we, life has gotten as raw as it could possibly get, as intense as it could possibly get. And we made it through now, instead of that, we're all born drugged. Our mothers give birth drugged. We, um, women say, they, they say, when I brought you home from the hospital to denote when they began mothering, where that's not even in my mind as the beginning of my mothering. I, I, can't, I 
I started mothering during my pregnancy and then continued mothering through my birth. And I don't have any idea of like when someone gave me the baby, when the medical authorities gave me the baby to take home as the beginning of my mothering. This creates very different mothers and it creates coddling mothers and it creates scared mothers. It creates who, who trust authority figures more than themselves. It creates a culture where you're going to run to the doctor every time there's physical discomfort and it creates weak men because of that. And we keep, we keep um, pretending it's something else, but we've broken birth and how we've broken humanity. And maybe it's more than that, but we can't fix it until we fix this. That is so powerful. Uh, my my wife is fifty six years old, and I'm so. And we've had four children. I'm so charged up. I wanted to get pregnant one more time. I guess she can't, huh? <laughs> okay, so I have a. a, a if yeah. We get ready, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so many. Ways. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no! Did you have something to say? I was being silly, but. <laughs> I, I obviously get really lit up. No, no, I hear it. We should be because that's the procreative urge. That is the root of our libido is wanting to create life. And yes, again, you know, maybe it's because I'm raised Catholic, but I think the separation of sex from, from procreation has really messed us up as humans to completely sever that because our drive to sexually connect with others comes from that desire to create life. And yes, we should get really excited, not in a pornified way, but an on fire with life way when we hear about birth. When I think of my birth, I'm like, oh, that was the coolest thing I've ever done. If, if I weren't 53, I would love to do it again. I, I used to say like, I'd love to do it again and again, but I really, I don't want to keep raising all those babies. You know, It's, <laughs> a, it's, it's exhausting, but it, it lights us up. Yes. It, it lights us up as it's designed to do. And it's Instead, we fear it, we medicalize it. We, that's like you talk about council culture, we start talking about how, you know, natural birth should, home birth, family centered birth should be the ideal. Oh, you're going to get shut down. Everyone's going to jump in, but I was high risk. I would have died. Like 95% yes. of women think they or their baby would have died if they hadn't turned themselves over to the authorities for their birth process. Yeah. Our, our last child was born at home and it was an incredible event. There was, probably 15 to 20 people. There it was like an event. Uh, you know, we were upstairs and the midwife was there and there was actually a, uh, a, a practice that had a doctor. My wife did the labor in the, in the hot tub. And then, uh, but my, you know, brothers were there. My mom was there. There was uh, friends there. And just as we got closer to the, her giving birth, everybody was just riveted. And it was an experience that, many people never had. And the next thing you know, you have a baby crying and just to join the family and the celebration amongst friends, friend and family of that home birth was unlike anything you're getting in a hospital, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. They've robbed us of that. And, um, the, um, Marston Wagner, who was a very outspoken home birth activist, who was actually the head of maternal child health of the World Health Organization in the 80s, trying to preserve home birth as the norm worldwide. He, he was not successful. He said, you know, that that birth is the pinnacle of a woman's power. And if you take mm. that power away from her and you put it on the medical authorities, you've got her for life. 
and she's going to run to you every time her kids have the sniffles and every time she has hot flashes or menstrual cramps. And this, again, is the primary rite of, of passage. And if we look at our birth practices, it's capturing everyone into this techno-pharmaceutical model where those are our lords and masters, and that is who runs the show. Okay, I have another question for you. Do you have you ever heard of a man named James Lindsay? Are you familiar with that name? Yes, yeah, the, uh, the um, cynical theories, and yeah, he's he's an interesting philosopher. Yeah, he's a, a you know one of the leading voices of the, the culture wars today, and uh, he talks about this wokeism being really a, a gnostic religion where you have knowledge imparted to you. And it doesn't have to necessarily be based on fact or reason, but it's like you just know that you know because something spiritual happens and and reason doesn't matter anymore. It's just that you know that uh, all of this oppressor, oppressed dialectic is true and you can't be talked out of it. You can't be reasoned with. You can't win an argument. And he himself says he's never won an argument with, with a radical, critical social justice warrior because they freak out if you just push back on them. And so what he he says that in and I want to be careful here because I don't want I don't want you to get upset, but I'm just telling you what he says. He says that a lot of what's happened and the crushing of what's going on with feminism and the co-opting and the takeover by the by the trans cult uh, was actually bought on by the feminists themselves when they decided to begin to look at uh uh, Judith Butler's, you know, gender performance and uh, taking uh, gender away from biological sex and looking at it as like it's staged or it's how you feel and it's not rooted in bi biological reality. And then it opened the door. It was part of the trunk of the of of feminism and not all feminism. He's not saying that about you know your type of feminism that's looking to just empower women, but the critical feminism that's looking to just destroy society and tear things apart and destroy the, you know, they, they hate society because you know, they're disadvantaged because of the patriarchy and we have to tear it down. He talks about that specific part of feminism. And he says that, well, now uh, the it's been co-opted by, mm -hmm. by the trans cult and he likens it to a, a train and, you guys want, not you personally, but you guys as feminists or the critical feminists want to get off the train and stop. Is But they're like, oh, no, we're not stopping at this station. We're going all the way and we're taking over. And he he kind of blames the, the radical feminists, the critical feminists as the ones that opened that door. And now they're in prison to it. And now they're getting brutalized by the trans movement. And so I don't know if this makes sense to you, but how would you respond to that? <laughs> Well, I would respond that he needs to learn his history and know that women have been speaking out within feminism against transgenderism since the, the 70s. I mean, Robin Morgan spoke out against it profusely in, in the 1971, and she even took flack for it back then. Janice Raymond wrote The Transsexual Empire, which is one of the most amazing analysis, uh, analyses. Yeah, I would say that transgenderism and transhumanism are part of the project. Like, these are people who don't see any problem um, completely modifying the body with pharmaceuticals, with, with surgeries, with medication. Often these people are fine with the transhumanist agenda. 
if we're all going to be equal in the in the digital world, right? So that type of feminism is not the same as radical feminism, which is a, a radical analysis of the power dynamics between males and females and how to negotiate between our different experiences in this world and how, how to advocate for the rights of women um, from that perspective. So I see what James is saying. I also think that he doesn't acknowledge the work of the radical feminists of the late 60s and early 70s who saw this coming, who fought against it, who spoke out against it. He's looking just at academia. I also think his analysis of how academia works is lacking and that he doesn't talk about the moneyed forces that came in and changed the women's studies departments in the late early 90s. We all shifted from women's studies to gender and sexuality studies. And that wasn't a grassroots women's movement. That was about big moneyed forces actively trying to destroy women's studies departments and bring in this postmodern uh, anti-woman stuff and, and to teach it to young women who legitimately want to learn about women's studies but now are becoming pro-porn and prostitution activists who think surrogacy is fine and, and think a man in a dress is a woman. So yeah, I, I would love to um, have a conversation with James. I'm not sure that's, we're both very argumentative personalities and I, I wonder who could mediate that conversation in a way that we didn't yell at each other. Um, you know, because I think both of us are very um, argumentative people, but I, I disagree with his analysis in many ways. I agree with his analysis in many other ways. Well, okay, wonderful. Anyway, uh, I'd like to give you the last word. Is there any uh, anything that's it's in your heart? Uh, one of the things I really want for this show is I want people to avoid this con conscientization of this, uh, you know, getting seduced into this <clears throat> ideology as a religion or those that are in it, give them a tool to get out. Uh, what would you say to, to these type of people, somebody who might be listening, that might be open to hear your lifelong experience uh, and maybe have a, a positive influence on them to, to avoid this mind virus? Mm. <sighs> I think that the real binary that needs to be broken is the right left artificial binary. I think we're entering times where it's, it's no longer right, left, liberal, conservative. Those, those old classifications don't fit what we're facing as the challenges of our world right now. The differences between people who are pro freedom and pro human sovereignty versus pro techno authoritarianism. Mm. And I really ask people to step back and be on the side of humanity. I, I love that. I heard a, a conference that you were speaking at you, you self-identified as politically non-binary. And I, I thought that was hysterical, you know. Right. <laughs> well, Mary, Mary Lou, I just really appreciated right, right. our visit. And uh, I, uh, is, is, it seems like your practice is booming. I don't know if you're taking on new patients or if there's a way people can get a hold of you to, to, to maintain communication with you. I, it's been an honor for me that you would actually take the time to come on our show and, and, uh, and have this dialogue with me and, you know, hopefully uh, it'll, it'll have a positive effect on, on, on some people. Um. 
My practice Enchanted Family Medicine is taking new patients. Um, I made, recently made a shift to stop taking insurance and start stop uh, participating in that corporate system that entails a lot of surveillance um, that I didn't want to be part of anymore. So I am now um, a sovereign practitioner and have a private pay practice. So I do have spaces available for people who want truly autonomous healthcare. And um, people can find me at Mary Lou Singleton at Substack or enchantedfamilymedicine.com. Now, now, do you do telemed services or do, do it, does it have to be in person? I do do telemed services. It's not my favorite. I, I don't like to do it for people who could come in in person, but for people from a distance, I'd be happy to, to talk with people remotely. Okay. Well, well, re really appreciate you. I appreciate your heart and I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more from you in the future and it, because you're a powerful voice and you, you make a great impact on people. And so, so thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me on, Michael. It's wonderful. Yeah, and I hope to collaborate in the future. Thank you. Okay, you take care.